episode 79, Harper's Ferry Revolver. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 22nd, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Religious fervor can be both inspiring and dangerous. Just ask Albert Hazlett. In 1859, this once innocent young Kansan found himself helping the alleged terrorist John Brown seize a federal arsenal and incite a giant revolt. But when Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry went south, Hazlitt knew what to do. He went on the run and traded his revolver to survive. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a firearm used by one of Brown's lieutenants at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, the event that sparked the Civil War. Then, sit back and enjoy your niblets as we connect William Allen White to the Jolly Green Giant. What did this scantily clad, green-skinned advertising icon have to do with the political mastermind in Emporia, Kansas? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Harper's Ferry Revolver. Man on the moon. Hello, Nikayla. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a revolver in our collection. Indeed. It's an 1849 model six-shot steel revolver with a walnut handle. It belonged to a man named Albert Hazlett. Who was he, and what is his link to Kansas history? Uh, actually, he has a pretty, uh, pretty interesting link to Kansas history and a pretty interesting link to national history. Um, though it may look like a plain revolver, it's actually kind of connected to um, what sparked the Civil War. It's connected to Harper's Ferry. Hazlett was, Albert Hazlett, was a member of the gang led by John Brown, um, the gang that basically conducted the raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, Hazlett was born, born to a poor tenant farmer in Pennsylvania, and he followed his brothers to Lynn County, Kansas, to start a new life some, sometime after 1855. Um, and just keep in mind that he's about 20 years old when he arrived in Kansas. He is described as a fresh-faced, which is good, always good to be described as fresh-faced, <laughs> fresh-faced, genial man with a fair complexion. He stood about 5 feet 11 um, with slender build and blonde curly hair. So, you know, he's pretty. He's a pretty good-looking young man, 5 mm -hmm. feet 11. That's pretty tall for that time period. And his picture in your Cool Things article, he does. He looks like a very nice man. Looks like a pretty, innocent, slender man. And which may have well been what he was like when he arrived in Kansas. By all accounts, that's kind of what he was like. What he was like when he arrived. Of course, destiny has a different path for him. Um, when he arrives in Kansas, he increasingly becomes interested in the free state cause, um, uh, an anti-slavery movement. But he's not interested. Uh, he's not necessarily interested in just the abolitionist part of it. He becomes highly entangled in, in what is con what is would be the, the more violent side to the free state movement. First, he gets hooked up with a man named James Montgomery, who is a local free state leader, free state leader in the Lynn County area. Um, 
But Montgomery is, uh, he's a pretty violent man. He's had a lot of uh, run-ins with the border ruffians from the Missouri side and uh, the bushwhackers. The bushwhackers. This is a bleeding time, bleeding Kansas time frame. There's retribution going on across the border. And basically, it's a lot of looting and stealing and killing. And that's what the James Montgomery is in the middle of. But James Montgomery is kind of small time at the time. Um, okay, so you mentioned he knew James Montgomery, who was small time abolitionist. Um, how did he come to know John Brown, big-time abolitionist? Right. John Brown, as far as abolitionists go, um, there aren't too many bigger that are, that are bigger than John Brown in this time frame. And we say that now, and people in that time frame were saying the same thing. John Brown was a big deal. There was other abolitionists, but uh, they weren't like John Brown. Mm -hmm. um, Montgomery actually introduced Hezlet to the big cheese, John Brown. <laughs> uh, Montgomery and Brown, obviously they were associates. They had known each other. Um, and at the, you know, just prior to this, Brown was kind of a regional figure. He'd come out here to Kansas because Kansas was the place to be. If you wanted to fight against slavery, this is where the big slavery question was, and this was where the future of slavery was going to be decided. Mm -hmm. So Brown came out here to fight against it. I also want you to keep in mind that Heslett's father dies roughly around the same time that Heslett came to Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, and Brown is about 30 years Heslett's senior. So it's not hard to imagine that this young, impressionable guy who follows his brothers out here to do some farming, all of a sudden is getting wrapped up into this violence. Um, he's seeing Brown as a father figure, and that is not by accident. Brown cultivated cultivated that image of the father figure. Um, I mean, he was he was a preacher growing up. I mean, he did a lot of different work, but Brown was primarily a preacher doing God's work, and he saw the world to include slaves and and the righteous to be his children would be the children of God, and he was the shepherd leading them. So he cultivated that image, and, and Heslet surely certainly felt comfortable with that image. Mm -hmm. um, though Brown was a religious zealot, um, there's really no indication that Heslet was. So I don't know that Heslet's moves were religiously motivated or if he was just a young kid wrapped up into the momentum of an impressive movement. The question is always with Brown is what exactly was him? How do we categorize him? So was Brown a charismatic, righteous preacher that inspired the young Heslet? Or was he a religious zealot that essentially brainwashed and was, was training a recruited terrorist? I mean, that's hmm. really the question. Yeah. What made Brown different from other abolitionists? What made him the big cheese? Um, well, most abolitionists at the time, well, an abolitionist is obviously someone who wants to, abol to abolish slavery. Right. Most of those people lived in the North, and by far, uh, they were religiously motivated. So the connection to religion or to Christianity meant that there was that they were prohibiting violence. I mean, they were religious, they wanted to end slavery, but they felt they wanted it done in a nonviolent way. Mm -hmm. Well, John Brown <laughs> was obviously of a different vein. Yes. He advocated violence. Um, not only did he accept it, but he promoted it. And mm -hmm. he, he considered it the only way to end slavery was through violence. Any means necessary. Exactly. Um, Brown grew up in a Calvinist family uh, that was opposed to human oppression from the very beginning. Uh, like I said, he later became teacher and a minister. And, uh, and eventually he brought his family out here to Kansas. And he had a big family. And they were all of the same mind as John Brown. They all wanted to end slavery. And they all came out here to Kansas to do it. Um, so, as an example of some of the violent stuff, let me just list off some of the violent things that uh, Brown was involved in. In 1856, um, 
uh, in retribution for the sacking of city of the city of Lawrence. You got free, you got uh, the bushwhackers coming over from Missouri, sacked the city of Lawrence. Brown was pretty ticked, so he went um, to Pottawatomie Creek where he executed pro-slavery men. And when I say executed, it wasn't a gun battle. Uh, John Brown went house by house with his sons, and they pulled guys out of their homes, pulled small boys out of their mom's hands, and executed them. And mm-hmm. when I say executed, I meant he hacked them with a broadsword. Oh, my goodness. So incredibly well. violent. 1856, we have the Battle of Osawatomie, in which John Brown actually loses his own son, is killed. Um, he runs off into the woods to hide for, to hide for an opportune moment to attack. And in 1858, um, John Brown actually sets up a provisional constitution. Um, he's actually setting up a parallel government to the United States, um, and he appoints himself commander-in-chief. He's got a secretary of state and a, uh, a couple different representatives, which is illegal. Mm. You can't set up mm. a parallel government. That's right. why we went to war with the South, is because <laughs> they had set up a parallel government. Um, so that's kind of some of the stuff that John Brown was involved in. Kind of a crazy guy. Slightly. Wild-eyed. So out of this comes one of history's best-known, you know, uh, instances of guerrilla warfare, I guess you could say, the attack on Harper's Ferry. Um, What were John Brown and his men trying to do at Harper's Ferry, and what outcome did they hope for? Brown and his men were attempting to to incite essentially a massive slave revolt. Their goal was to go to uh, the town of Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, I guess it would have been Virginia at the time. Right, right. Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and seize the arsenal there, the federal arsenal, um, steal the weapons, uh, rifles and and um, pikes, uh, mm-hmm. spear-like weapon, and take those weapons out into the countryside, hand them out to slaves, and slaves would use them against their masters. And from that point, it would spread throughout the South. And we would end slavery as we know it. So a slavery, a slave rebellion or slave uprising. So that was the grand goal of John Brown and his men. And he had a group of about about 20 guys with him, a little less than 20. Um, Obviously, it didn't work out that way. (laughs) Didn't work out that way at all. No. Um, Picking Harper's Ferry was not an accident. Harper's Ferry was was kind of a symbol. The city was basically founded by George Washington. The Washington family settled in that area, um, or a branch of the Washington family. Mm -hmm. And so Washington's owned land, and they wanted to set up a federal arsenal there because, you know, it's it's a good chance to make some money off of your land. Sure. uh, it's later visited by Thomas Jefferson. It's it becomes an industrial powerhouse in the, you know in sort of that border region between the South and the North, and there's slaveholders all around it. So it's kind of it's it's Brown seeing it as corrupting of the founding fathers like George Washington's the the, the original American ideals being corrupted by this slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, George Washington's great-grandnephew is still living in the area. And that becomes significant, Lewis Washington. So on the night of October 16th, Brown and his men, they've been up hiding in a farm nearby, just kind of scouting out the area. Um, that night, they, they kind of quietly move into town. They move in. They seize the arsenal. And at the same time, they capture and take hostage Lewis Washington. This is terrorist tactics in yeah. a way. I mean, people are going to debate with I mean, these are these are tactics to make your event a high-profile event. Mm-hmm. Um, so that night, they've taken control of the town. At least they assume that they have taken control of the town. This is all contingent 
on the fact they have limited resources, this raiding party does, and they really have only a, tall, a small time frame that they can work off. What it's contingent on is the revolt spreading. Mm -hmm. Okay, If it doesn't take up momentum, then they kind of don't have a plan B. <laughs> right. So they're sitting there in the town. train pulls in. Uh, they stop the train. Uh, they, they cut the telegraph. But for some reason, they allow the train to roll on through. The train is headed to Washington, D.C. So there's the clock. Like, they've started the clock on the end of their plan right there. Because as soon as that train gets into D.C., it informs the federal authorities that the town that the town of Harper's Ferry is being held by John Brown. And they all know who John Brown is. So do you think at some point, as the train's rolling out of town, one of the raiders is like, whoops, whoops. <laughs> what did we just do? I'm certain they were. I'm certain there was various points throughout this raid where, they, where the raiders were saying, whoops. And John Brown's sitting somewhere with his, it was a little flunky saying, idiots. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so while they're there, you know, they're still they're still trying to seize the weapons. They're having some difficulty taking control of all parts of the town. Increasingly, the local population is becoming aware of what they're doing, and the local population is a getting angry that mm -hmm. John Brown. I mean, they're slaveholders. Right. This is in the South. This is Virginia. Um, they're mad that John Brown is in their town. Um, so they're getting mad, and they're also getting drunk and armed. Oh, so it's a combination that does not look well for John Brown. Um, <laughs> Within a day, uh, the locals have fought back. You fought back John Brown's forces. Um, Marines and federal forces have showed up. Showed up in town, and they're taking. I mean, they're trained. They're taking back the city. They eventually push John Brown into the fire engine house, which today is known as John Brown's Fort. Mm -hmm. That's where he makes his last stand, and he's captured and later taken to Charlestown, Virginia, where he's tried and executed. Um, where is Hezlet during all this? Well, Lieutenant Hezlet, as Brown liked to call him, <laughs> um, his job was to hold the arsenal um, once it was originally seized. As you can see, <laughs> something happened to Hezlet along the way. Good job. Yeah, yeah. as Hezlet, um, he's there throughout the night, and he sees the federal forces arrive. He sees things going south, and he's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so he hits the trail, and he's on the run. He's on the lam. Okay, so we, we all know that for Brown, the result of the attack on Harper's Ferry was his body a moldering in a grave, right? Right. So what happened to Hazlitt after he runs off and, and abandons the attack? Did he use this revolver to heroically free the slaves of Virginia, or what happened? Not exactly. As I said, Hazlitt's on the run, and while he's on the run, because he's on foot, he develops debilitating blisters. Oh, He rats. just can't go anymore. So he looks for a hotel to stay in. Finally, he finds, he finds an inn to stay in in Oakville, uh, southern Pennsylvania. He's on his way up north, right? He's trying right, to get out of the right. south and trying to yeah. find someplace, someplace safe north. But he doesn't have any money. So what does he do? He trades his one revolver to pay for the room that night. Mm. So that's where this revolver comes. Shortly a couple days later, federal forces seize him in Pennsylvania. And then he is sees him in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He's extradited to uh, Virginia, to Charlestown, Virginia, which is interesting because... It really shouldn't, he, that shouldn't have happened. Um, he was seized in Pennsylvania. Um, so most likely if there was any proceedings, they should have happened in Pennsylvania. But um, second, it was a raid on a federal arsenal. And he's taken to be tried in a, in a state court in mm -hmm. Virginia. 
It should have been tried in a federal court. That was no accident. There was some elements there working to have John Brown and Hazlitt tried in a state court in Virginia because you could control the outcome mm -hmm. much more easily. You didn't have a northern government interfering in what you were about to do. You didn't want anybody sympathizing with them. Mm -hmm. um, so when... Interestingly, when Hezlet was captured, there was a little bit of confusion. In fact, in some ways, there's a little doubt. There's a little a little question of doubt of whether Hezlet was involved or whether they even caught the right guy. Um, when Hezlet escaped, he used an alias. He used a different name. Uh, when he was abducted, no one was sure if he was Hezlet. No one was even sure if Hezlet was connected to John Brown. Eventually, they came through. They looked over Brown's diary and they saw a reference to Hezlet. So they knew Hezlet was part of it, but they didn't know if the guy they had captured was Hezlet. Well, a witness steps forward and says that they can identify Hezlet. No one's really sure who the witness is mm -hmm. or if he was just produced for the trial. Um, and interestingly, Hezlet was taken back to Charlestown and none of the other raiders ever identified him. They didn't even acknowledge him when he came into cells. Mm -hmm. um, that's either because A, they didn't know who the heck he was, or B, they knew exactly who he was and they were trying they were trying to make sure he could get out mm -hmm. based on his alias. Hmm. A lot going on there. So then uh, what happens while he's in jail? Does he end up uh, does he get out or does he Right. He's convicted. Yeah. He's hanged. Um, he's hanged a couple months after John Brown is hanged. Um, uh, so yeah. He, too, lies moldering in the grave. Indeed. Yeah. I'm so excited to get to use that phrase in a podcast. <laughs> okay, so it seems like at several points in the story of Harper's Ferry, um, things happen that are a little inopportune that may have completely changed the outcome of the event, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if they hadn't let the train pass through, who knows what would have happened? Maybe if they had taken the booze in addition to the arsenal, you know, that would have kept the locals from getting drunk. Uh -huh. And for Hezlet, it seems like he might have made a clean getaway if it hadn't been for those darn blasted blisters. Those pesky blisters. Man, I, you know, I feel his pain. I know where he's coming from. If they only had a good shoes back then. Yeah, if only. Um, Unfortunate ailments may have led to many captures of outlaws throughout history. Right, goofy blunders. Right, yeah. Like, for example, say, you know, Al Capone. If he hadn't gotten heartburn after eating that big plate of spaghetti and meatballs with extra garlic bread, maybe he could have escaped charges of tax evasion. True, you know? true. Yeah. Um, One can speculate. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you the person on the lamb, and you tell me what their tragic downfall was. I can do that. All right, you ready? Yep. Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Well, as the, as everybody knows, those are uh, they're two uh, uh, bank robbers on the run during the Great Depression. Right. Um, I'm going to say their failure was they were constantly making out and they weren't paying attention to what was going on. Yeah. At least that's how it was in the Faye Dunaway movie. Yeah, they did do a lot of making out. But, you know, she was also a trendy dresser, so I think maybe she had to stop for accessories or shoes or a cute cloche or something. Oh, uh, it's... You know, they of had all course. that money. Why I not? Know. Yeah. I got one for you. How about uh, Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette? Right. Well, so in like I think it was 1791, they're on the run out of Paris, heading up to the uh, northern border of France, trying to to get away so that they can uh, set up a way to get rid of the General Assembly. Right. right. Take over on the government the run. again. Sure. Yeah. Exiled. Yeah. Um, I think probably this one had a lot to do with the need to stop for cake. You know, Marie Antoinette Marie loved her Antoinette. cake. Yeah. And, you know, maybe once you got on into that part of France, it was like there was no good cake to be had. 
No, that cake is always... It's just a harassment I, from Marie Antoinette. Yeah, who doesn't love cake, though? Exactly. Okay, so finally, how about Bruno Hauptmann, who is right. known for kidnapping the Lindbergh baby? Right, he kidnapped the Lindbergh baby. Well, I mean, really, you can only go, you can't go too fast when you're on the run with a baby. I'm pretty sure he got wrapped up a lot. Wrapped up. But he bad. got wrapped up a lot changing uh, diapers. Changing diapers. T- t- changing diapers. Couldn't get away quickly. That's right. That's probably words to live by. Don't kidnap a baby unless you're willing to change diapers. Exactly. Well, thanks, Merle, for telling us about the revolver and Albert Hayslip. You bet. time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Sarah Price. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Howdy. This week, we are connecting William Allen White, a famous political writer and friend of presidents, to the Jolly Green Giant. You may be familiar with JGG through his work in commercials, where he serves as a spokesman for peas. Mm. Uh, ladies, are you familiar with uh, Jolly? Yes. yes. I actually watched the original commercial. It's a little frightening. <laughs> it is. More Why like, frightening? It's a puppet. Oh. It's more like the creepy green giant. All right. I'm glad yeah. to see he's evolved over the years. <laughs> he has a giant <laughs> can of niblets. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're talking about food. Um, okay. First, we'll start with a little general background. Jolly is the symbol of the giant of the Green Giant Food Company. He is traditionally depicted as a smiling green-skinned giant wearing a tunic, wreath, and boots made of leaves. Um, the company was founded in 1903, actually, as the Minnesota Valley Canning Company. The name Green Giant was introduced in 1925 to help market the company's peas, and in 1950, the company adopted the Green Giant name. Uh, the company was later sold to Pillsbury, which was then acquired by General Mills, and that's who owns it today. Um, Jolly was created by the advertising genius Leo Burnett in 1928. He also created characters such as Tony the Tiger, Charlie the Tuna, and the Pillsbury Doughboy. And in fact, the Burnett Company is still running today, and in 2008, they won a couple of awards for their advertising campaign of the Nintendo Wii. Um, according to the te- according to the company, if anyone's curious, uh, the Jolly Green Giant is green because he grew up on a different planet, ate peas, and turned green and grew. So he's an alien. An alien that eats domesticated peas. Is he in any way related to Superman? He might. He's green. He might be made of kryptonite. I'm just saying. Mm. <laughs> it's an interesting theory. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Whatever. <laughs> This challenge came at the request of a listener. And Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about this particular challenge? Sure. Rebecca from Saskatchewan, Canada, wanted us to connect William Allen White to the Jolly Green Giant. She says Mayo Clinic and Carson Cosgrove are key links. Hmm. Well, Michaela, is this true? Is the Mayo Clinic and Carson Cosgrove, uh, are they significant in any way? Not in my solution. They're not. I'm really sorry to disappoint, but the Mayo Clinic and Carson Cosgrove did not help me at all. So maybe Rebecca sees something we didn't. But I, um, I want to hear her solution. She has to send it to us. All right. So if you're listening, Rebecca, send that solution. So what was your solution? Okay, well, my solution is, as you mentioned, the Jolly Green Giant is a brand, is the symbol of a brand owned by General Mills, um, which is a corporation mainly concerned with food products. 
And as you also mentioned, General Mills was once part of the Minneapolis Milling Company, and that company was bought by a man named Cadwaller C. Washburn. Mm, I'm yes. glad he's not uh, alive to hear me butcher his first name. Cadwaller. Cadwaller, yes. Or Cadwallader, I don't know. He was a businessman, a soldier, and politician, and he bought the company shortly after it was founded. Um, Washburn served in the Civil War. Um, he eventually attained the rank of Major General, and in this capacity, he commanded the cavalry of the 13th Corps um, in Grant's, Ulysses S. Grant's, Vicksburg campaign. Mm -hmm. Grant called Washburn one of the best administrative officers that he had, and also Washburn's brother was Grant's Secretary of State. And he could make a good can of peas. You betcha. Um, <laughs> in his declining years, Ulysses S. Grant wrote his memoirs, which were published and promoted by the well-known Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And as we know from previous podcasts, Twain met William Allen White in New York in 1907. Oh, wow. So there you go. Nicely done. Thank you. Sarah, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Once again, we are at the whim of our fans. This time, someone wants us to connect William Allen White to Bonnie and Clyde, the notorious mm -hmm. crime duo. Mm -hmm. During the Great Depression, these two lovebirds spent time robbing banks and shooting people. That is until federal agents turned the happy couple and their car into Swiss cheese. Oops. <laughs> so if you think you can connect William Allen White to uh, a Romeo and Juliet with a getaway car, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 79, Harper's Ferry Revolver. If you would like to see images of the revolver that Heslett traded for a hotel room, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. To find out about our latest podcast posting or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, check out our Facebook page and become our friend. Come back in two weeks when curator Laurel Fritsch examines a set of Asian sandals worn by a Topeka man that was taken prisoner in the Philippines during World War II. Forced to complete the infamous Bataan Death March, Colonel James Hughes was declared officially dead by the United States Army. In 1945, he was liberated and returned to his family. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Now, Andy, did you hear about this one? Tell me.